On the back of the uh, the back of your bulletin, I want to call attention to uh, Inquirer's class next Sunday. This is our last Inquirer's class for the year. Inquirer's class is where you get to come and learn about the church. If you're a visitor, uh, uh, maybe you're not a member, you've never come, or you're new in the area and you want to learn about our church, let me invite you to come to that and hear about what goes on, why we do the things that we do. Um, this morning, there's several other things on there, by the way, that I, you should pay attention to as well. This morning, I think I'd like to pray for the people in our congregation that are sick. You know, if you uh, take, we have, during this time of the year, we have two to three hundred that come, and if only ten percent of them are sick, that's still twenty to thirty people. It's still quite a bit of people. And um, I know about a lot more than some of you know, but I think it's important to stop from time to time and lift them up. One of the uh, questions I love to ask people is, what do you what do you get out of church that you don't get anywhere else? Why, why come to church? And a favorite response is, well, I can find God in the mountains. Well, true, but you can't find community. That's the one thing you can't find. And one of the things we do is pray for people that are sick, right, and hurting. So let's stop and lift up the people in our congregation. Father, I do lift up the people. You know them all by name. I know a few of them, and I know there's, I'm sure there's some that I don't even know about, Lord. I pray that you would be very real in their lives, be very uh, strong, gracious, merciful. Lord, show yourself to them in very real ways uh, during this time. I pray that uh, for those that are struggling with uh, significant, significant illnesses like cancer and things like that, I, I pray, God, that and they're fighting for their very lives. I pray that you would be very strong for them. Help them. Lord, help us to continue to be a congregation that loves our people well. So uh, show yourself to them in ways that they haven't seen you before, in uh, ways that they learn more about your faith and grace than they've seen in, pr- in earlier times. Thank you, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, as Mark said, we're on the third story, so we're on the third knot of um, miraculous beginnings. And um, the first two, Isaac and Abraham, taught us some things, much of which were expected. Today will be a little different. This story today is um, a little bit challenging. It might surprise you what we're going to discover about Samson. He's a little different than the earlier ones. The reason why we're doing this is to prepare us for Advent. Yes, Advent is just around the corner. And we're looking at miraculous beginnings because they provide us a pattern, if you will, heading up to the birth of Christ. Uh, One of the things that God loves to do throughout his text is highlight where he is reaching into our world for our benefit to see him. And so these stories of miraculous births, they all teach us something. They're leading us to Christ and um, Advent. Um, By the way, Advent is the gospel, isn't it? The good news it's the wonderful news that God has not forget, forgotten us. He remembered us. He came back and delivered us. So last week we looked at Moses, and uh, we paid attention to how the Lord hears us. That We said there that he hears your cries. Even if you don't aren't aware of the Lord listening, he is listening. He's very, very acutely aware of when you cry out to him. He's also preparing us for ministry, each of us, especially if we let him. Today we're going to look at Samson's miraculous beginning, but we're going to ask the question, what happens if we don't let him, or if we don't even know he's doing it? Will he still do it? Will he still use us or deliver us? This is a story of Samson. 
Samson occurs in the book of Judges, chapters 13 through 16. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you. I'm going to read pieces of it, but interwoven in there is the story, the parts that you need to know to make sense of this. But first, the background. Joshua has now died, and the people turn to the Lord directly. Joshua is the last major leader for a period of time. And so the people turn to the Lord and say, well, what do we do? Well, later, that generation dies, and the Israelites turn away completely from the Lord. I'm in Judges chapter 2, verse 8. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath, Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, in other words, that whole generation had died, Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. So right off the bat, we have a very important lesson staring us in the face. We are always one generation away from losing our faith, aren't we? We're always one generation away. For those of you that are in the second half of life here in the congregation, we have a responsibility, an obligation to build into those who are in the first half of their life because we're always one step away from losing our faith. That's very important for us to do. Don't forget that. If you have time on your hands, reach out to one of these young couples. You know, I'm amazed Sunday after Sunday how our young mothers and fathers, they show up and their kids, you saw them all up here, you, you that are older remember what it was like to get the kids ready, right? And get them all here, especially when you got like 12 kids. And uh, they, it's, a major, it's a major work to get here every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. Then you factor in the financial stresses of being early in your career, trying to decide even if this is the right career and how are we going to make ends meet and all of that. You've been there. You've seen the Lord work. Don't forget our younger people. Don't forget our younger singles that are wrestling through what's God's plan for me. Our young couples that don't have children yet, maybe they are trying and, and God hasn't answered that prayer yet. What about them? Don't forget them. Build into them. Invite them out. Just walk up to a young couple and ask them out for coffee. You will bless them if they have time to go. Okay? Love on them. So we learned that lesson right here. We're just one generation away from that. So um, the, this generation died. The Israelites turned away from the Lord. So, the God, uh, so God begins to raise up judges or deliverers. That's why this book is called Judges. They start to go through a cycle where they turn away from the Lord. So the Lord sends an, a marauding nation, an army in, to rout them and get their attention. Um, that wakes them up. And then they cry out for help. And God delivers them and sends along a judge. So this is where we have some of the... Um, some of the great judges, we have um, Ehud, for instance, in Judges 3. I'll let you read him. It has something to do with being left-handed, not that that's important. Uh, but other than that, then you have Deborah. Some of you remember Deborah as a general. You have Gideon. So you remember some of these stories. Um, just before we get to Samson, we have Jephthah. Jephthah is known for his rash vow, his foolish vow. The Lord raised him up, gave him a great victory, and he praises God and he says, whoever walks through the door, I'm going to sacrifice for you. What a stupid vow. That was never part of Israel's history to do human sacrifice. But you know who walked through the door? His daughter. 
And the last part of his story is he lets her go to enjoy the mountains for a while before he sacrifices her. He sacrifices his daughter because he made a vow to the Lord. And um, that just doesn't make sense to us on any level, does it? Nothing in our world makes sense to that, but that's what he did. The very next thing that happens is Samuel's born. It's almost like God is saying, yeah, that wasn't a good thing to do. So you took a child's life, I'm going to give a child's life back. And um, maybe he's uh, maybe he's just showing something different here. So God raises up all of these judges, one after the other, to no avail, because they keep turning away from the Lord. So in Judges chapter 13, we have the story of Samson's birth. <clears throat> Starts off by saying, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. This is the sixth time we're told in Judges that the nation turned away from God, and this is the longest period that they served under an enemy nation, the Philistines, 40 years. They had gotten used to it. So, it's the first time that Israel does not cry out for the Lord to deliver them. They've become comfortable under the oppression of the Philistines. So he decides to deliver them anyway. So an angel comes to a barren, unnamed woman. We never know Samson's mother's name. Uh, to inform her of her upcoming pregnancy. That's Judges 13, verse 2. A certain man of Zorah, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had, give, had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant, and you'll have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. All right, if you... Taking a Nazarite vow was a voluntary thing. We have very few record where examples where God says this person is going to be a Nazarite. So if a person wanted to be a Nazarite, they agreed to let their hair grow long. They agreed never to touch a corpse. Uh, they agreed never to drink strong wine. And by the way, Samson's going to violate all these, all these things. And so he's dedicated to the Lord from birth. Here's what he, the final thing the angel says to her. He will begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Okay, so an angel comes to her, and she's told to drink no alcohol. He's never to have his head shaved. He will be a Nazarite to get dedicated to God. And his purpose is he will lead Israel in military victory away from the Philistines. He will, he will be victorious militarily. Okay, her barrenness reveals something that we're used to seeing in Scripture, aren't we? God loves to work through the impossible. We think of Sarah in Genesis 11, or Rebecca in Genesis 25, or Rachel in Genesis 29. These are all familiar stories to you. They each gave birth to sons who played prominent roles in Israel's history. Now, we expect Samson to have a similar calling and a similar role. That's not what happens. This story is filled with incongruity and challenge all the way through. The first one is she goes to her husband. And he, for whatever reason, decides he wants to go to the Lord to hear the story repeated. But she fails to give him the entire message. She doesn't tell him everything the angel told her. For example, she omits the prohibition about cutting his hair. She doesn't tell the husband that. More importantly, most importantly, I would argue, is that she doesn't tell her husband his destiny. That is, that he would lead Israel out from underneath the Philistines. 
throughout the rest of the story, we have no evidence that she ever told these things to her husband or even to Samson. He never knew. Even though God's plan was, was for Samson to deliver Israel, there's no evidence that he understood that role. None in the text. This would lead to tragic consequences, not having the full story. Why she didn't tell the story, I don't even know. And when the angel, um, when, when he went to the angel, Manoah in verse 12 says, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs a boy's life and work? He wants to know what's going to happen with the son that you're going to give us. The angel of the Lord said, your wife must do all that I have told her. Go ask your wife. The angel doesn't fill in the details. He lets the woman's, the wife's deception stand. It's a very intriguing part of the story. So Samson, we have no record that he understood his role as a judge, as a deliverer. Tragic, tragic. Okay, interwoven throughout the story, every step of the way, we're going to see little shreds of evidence that the Lord is present. For example, in uh, chapter verse 13, verse 24, the last two verses of that chapter, the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. There's one of those little shreds of evidence. The Spirit of the Lord began to, to stir him. Now, since the Lord is beginning to stir him, as he grows older and he starts looking for a wife, we expect him to marry a young Israelite woman. Chapter 14 shows us instead he marries a young Philistine wo uh, woman. This was against his parents' wishes. Chapter 14, verse 3, his father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all of our people? In other words, among Israel. Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to her father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. Now, a little shred of evidence about the Lord. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines for at that time they were ruling over Israel. This is of the Lord. Now, you have to understand, marrying a Philistine woman was against his parents' wishes, but it was also against the law, the Mosaic law. They weren't to marry foreign women. But keep in mind, we have several things at work here. Number one is, during this time in Israel's history, uh, the law had a very non-existent role. We think of the law of Moses, we think of commands and the law code and all of those things, don't we? How harsh it is and unrelenting and unforgiving. And that's... That's not really how they saw it in ancient Israel. They saw it more as principles to live by, guidelines to live by. The authority rested with the person in charge. So the king, for example, when they later on have kings, the king is the one that decided things. That's why the kings could lead them away from obedience to the law. And at several places in Israel's history, they didn't even know the law existed. You look at Josiah's reform when he, they discovered the law in the temple. He didn't even know. They came and read it to him. The first thing was to tear his clothes. Oh, my goodness. We have a God that's really ticked off at us because we violated the law. So during this period, they're not walking with the Lord. They probably don't even know the law exists. He kn Samson has no clue about his own destiny, and so there's no sense of what it means to obey the Lord or the law, and so he marries this, form this foreign woman, and God uses this as part of his plan. So God uses Samson's emotional involvement to set the stage for strife. He wants to create strife between Israel and the, and the Philistines so that he can uh, separate them. 
And this is going to be Samson's downfall, by the way. He has a thing for women. Story is repeated in the story over and over again. All right, so they find a woman, and he's on his way to the wedding. He encounters and he kills a lion. One of the famous stories, he kills a lion, tears it apart with his bare hands, which is designed to show us how strong he was. This is a very strong man we're talking about. And this strength came from God. So for whatever reason, he went back home, didn't go all the way over, and left his parents and came back and finds the carcass. And the uh, carcass is full of honey, so he dips his hand in and eats the honey. Now, if he, uh, we don't know for sure, but if he knew that he was a Nazarite, he probably wouldn't have done that because uh, one of the Nazarite requirements was not to become unclean at the touch of carcass, and that's what he did. But he does, and so he goes on to his wedding, and uh, he doesn't have any of his friends with him, so the Philistines provide 30 men for his wedding because none of his friends came along. So he challenges them. Here we learn something about his brashness, if you will. He challenges them with a riddle about the honey. What would prompt him to do that? If you can answer the riddle, each of you owe me 30 pieces of uh, fine, uh, 30 outfits of fine clothes. If not, I'll give each of you that. So he, he enters into a bet almost with them or a contest right away. What would prompt him to do that? So you can see some of this brashness starting to come out. So what do they do? They talk his young wife into figuring out the answer because uh, nobody knows the answer to his strength. What's the key to that? We know because we've read the story, we understand the Nazarite vow, but they do not. So they trick his young wife. They talk her into figuring it out, betraying her, which she does. So he goes and he kills 30 men in anger and, um, and gets their clothing. Chapter 14, verse 10. Now, his, uh, his father went down to see the woman. Oh, no, no. Here's the riddle that he gave them in verse 14. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. So once his young wife has figured it out, they give the answer to the riddle. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, if you, have not if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. If you had not inappropriately involved yourself in my marriage with my young wife, you would have never known this. The Spirit of the Lord came on him in power. So here we have another reference to the Lord. So he went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feasts. Okay, God works this into his plan. In anger, he gets vengeance. We still have no clue that he knows what he's doing, that he knows what he's doing is on behalf of the Lord. That's not, that information is not given to us. He leaves in anger without consummating his marriage. What man leaves his young wife? You see, in the ancient world, they would party for seven years, uh, seven days, not seven years. Seven days, they'd have a great festival, a lot of dancing and drinking and all that. On the seventh day, he would consummate the marriage sexually, and he leaves right at that point. Boy, it says something about his brashness, his arrogance, his anger, and he storms away. Okay. So Samson goes back to see his wife the very next verse in chapter 15, but she has been given to another man. Later on at that time, of the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm, bring, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father said, no, 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 no. You can't go in. I was so sure you hated her. What man leaves his bride on the honeymoon day? 
I was so sure you hated her that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. He's trying to calm things down because you've got two nationalities. I mean, this is the basic definition of how wars start, right? Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them now. I will really harm them. So he plots revenge. That's the story of chapter 15. He turns 300 foxes loose in their fields and he destroys their crops. So the Philistines go after him and uh, his own countrymen say, whoa, 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 what are you doing here? We're, we're under your rule. We haven't caused any problem. And they, he says, Philistines say, we're going after Samson because of what he's done to us. So if you're under the rule of the Philistines and they're pretty upset, the best thing to do is turn over the culprit. So they betray Samson, they turn against him, they turn him over to the Philistines. Even they do not know his secret, they have to try to trick him, and they never find out the secret to his strength. That is a closely guarded secret. That's part of the covenant with the Lord. So the Spirit of the Lord comes on him after they betray him. He picks up the jawbone of the donkey, and he kills a thousand Philistines. So then at the end of chapter 15, verse 20, we find the conclusion to the story. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Up until this point, this signals the end of the judge. We're on to the next judge. Not so with Samson. God has more to do. Samson goes after he kills a thousand and he visits a prostitute. It's a wise thing to do. Boy, oh boy. His sexual appetite gets him into trouble once again because now the Philistines know that he has come back. He's in their, their walled village and they try to trap him. This sets the stage for the final encounter. Right after this, he meets Delilah and he falls in love. So most of you know Samson as the husband of Delilah. He makes a mistake a third time. He marries another Philistine woman. Keep in mind, he has no sense of his own destiny, what he's about to do. He's just a young man given into his sexual appetites, doing whatever he wants. He's strong, he's arrogant, he gets away with everything. So the Philistines, they bribe her into helping them. She learns the secret of his strength and betrays him. So he betrays the Lord by revealing his secret. He betrays his own oath. So what do the Philistines do? They seize him and they blind him. Verse 21. The Philistines seized Samson. They gouged out his eyes. They took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. He's, uh, he's now blind. He's weak. But the Lord is not done. Here's another shred of evidence. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. So, God is not finished yet. So the Philistines decide to throw this great party. Verse 23. The rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. That's how you knew that your God was strong when you won militarily. Every nation had that premise. That's why the Israelites struggled to stay faithful to the Lord. Because uh, when they sinned, he would let them get routed. That was a sign that their God is not as powerful. 
They didn't quite grasp the fact that their God is actually the only God and turning them over to another nation on purpose to teach them a lesson. So they struggled throughout their whole uh, time, their whole history, because God let them do that. And, and, and our God wouldn't let us do that. He's going to prosper us, isn't he? I mean, we think that way, don't we? Isn't it very natural to think our God wants to bless us and prosper us so we don't have to worry? And so they're celebrating the Philistines, their God, Dagon. Verse 24, when the people saw Samson, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who has laid waste our land and multiplied, multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. Okay, I want you to get the picture here, this story. This is a man who was very strong, had life his way every step of the way, very proud, and he's now reduced to very little. He's humbled. He's humiliated. He's embarrassed. He's shamed. They're making fun of him. They're parading him in the temple, laughing at him, mocking him. You get the picture? God has taken him to the place where he's at the end of his rope. He's reached the end now. They stood him among the pillars. Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me, because he's blind, remember, probably groping about, he's not used to being blind, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. The ruling council at this time had five rulers from the five major cities, plus all the leadership. They're all there. And, they're on, and on the roof, there were 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. So they're watching it. In their celebration and their pride, they, they want to make fun of him, mock him. He's now blinded, humbled, more importantly, he's dependent on the Lord. So Samson prayed to the Lord, and here we have capitals, L-O-R-D, the name of the one true living God. This is the first time in the story that he calls out to God by name. He's at the end of the rope. Okay? He calls out to him by, uh, he prays to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, Yahweh, please remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. Just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Even here, he's not aware that he's a, a judge, a deliverer for God. He doesn't call out to God to help him fulfill his calling. He calls out to get vengeance. We have no record that he ever knew what his calling in life was. In other words, his mom never told him. So please, God, just this one time, let me give vengeance. Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might. Down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Therefore, he killed many more when he died than while he lived. God, with that move, began to fulfill his plan to carry it out of leading Israel away 
alpha and underneath to control the Philistines. Okay, so what are the lessons we learn from this story? There's several. It's an amazing story. It's filled with all kinds of challenges and incongruities, things that don't make sense to us. Number one, God works his plan in spite of and because of us. Both are true. God is sovereign. I am so grateful that I serve a sovereign God. I'm glad that he's God and I'm not. He knows what to do. There are several times in my life when I've been in sin where I've stopped and prayed and I've said, God, I, I'm so glad that you're God and I'm not. I only have me, my own experience. You have a lot more experience with people that are stuck, stuck in the same sin than I'm sinning with. I'm glad that I can come to you for help and mercy and you know what to do. He is God. We should never forget that. He is God and he is sovereign and he will do what God wants to do to fulfill his plan. But listen to these incongruities in the story. Israel never asks for deliverance. It's the first time in the book, but he decides to deli deliver them anyway. Samson's mother never asks to be blessed with a son. It's one of the few stories where she never asks, but God supernaturally enables her anyway and chooses her. She never discloses the full story to her husband or her son. And the angel doesn't either. It's one of the intriguing parts of the story. Tell your wife she should do exactly what I told her. Go talk to your wife, in other words. Samson never acts as a judge or deliverer. In fact, he acts the opposite of what we expect a great leader to do. It's not like Deborah just a few years earlier. Right? He does the opposite. When the Lord stirs Samson, he doesn't marry an Israelite woman. He marries a Philistine woman. When Samson ignites a war, his own people turn against him, his own countrymen. You would think they'd be the ones that would stand up with him. He visits a prostitute right after that. And then he goes on and marries another Philistine woman. Samson never calls on the Lord by name until the very end of his life. His last thing he does is calls on the Lord by name because he's reduced now to a very broken, humble person. This is the story of a, a deliverer who never discovered his purpose in life and yet begins the process of delivering a people who never asked to be delivered. It's one of the amazing ironies of the scripture. All right, so what does this mean to us? Samson did very little that was good in this story, the way we would define good, very little. Uh, and yet God used him. His sexual appetite got him into lots of trouble. His arrogance and pride got him into trouble. In the end, he was humbled and he carried out God's plan whatever, without ever realizing what that plan was or what that role was. A couple of thoughts. Most of you will probably never be called upon to deliver a nation. Yet God still desires to use you. What we're working on here, Miraculous Beginnings, is the story of every one of your lives. God has something in store for you, and he wants to use you. The only question is how that's going to come about. He used Samson's parents. They didn't even ask for a son. He used Samson's first wife. No indication that she was a follower of the Lord. He used Samson's countrymen. They turned against him. He used Delilah. No evidence that she was a follower of the Lord. And then he used Samson, who had no... Uh, no indication that we don't have any indication that he even realized he was part of God's plan. 
Now, the, this miracle beginning, miraculous beginning, and the one we looked at last week with Moses or even Isaac, they, they really demonstrate a, uh, two different ways that God uses people. One is out of faithfulness. Moses was faithful. In fact, he was a little bit too faithful. He jumps the gun. And the other one is out of unfaithfulness. Here's a man who, from everything we can see in his life, did the opposite of what we would expect from a, a leader in Israel. And God still uses them. So these stories are characterized by faithfulness and unfaithfulness. My question for you is, which one describes you? He's there for a reason. God is sovereign. He will fulfill his plan. He will. He's just as equipped to use your unfaithfulness and disobedience as he is your faithfulness and obedience. My perspective when I look out at you is that you are characterized by faithfulness. If not, I'd, one of us would be having a conversation with you. You, you're, you, don't look as pe- you don't look like people that are characterized by unfaithfulness. But it's like when I talk to you about greed, I don't know if you, I think of you as very generous. Only you know. When you look in the mirror, you're the only one that can tell. I can't tell from the outside. So I think of you as wonderful, generous people who are obeying the Lord. But go look in the mirror. Figure it out. He wants you to be faithful. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are God and we are not. Thank you that you are sovereign. You know all things. And we do not. Thank you that you are a God who demonstrates integrity and trustworthiness. That we can always turn to you. Lord, we can turn to you when we are living righteous lives. We can turn to you when we are in sin and you know exactly what to do. Thank you for being a God who is gracious. We have no fear of you. We can turn to you every step of the way. Thank you for that. Thank you for using Samson. I, I've wondered... Uh, as I've studied this, what his, uh, that day when the temple came crashing down and he entered into your presence, what a wonderful reunion that must have been to realize that you had used him and he wasn't even aware of it. Father, I pray that you would continue to use us as a church. Help us, God, to, to live faithful lives so that the people around us can hear the incredible news of your son. In his name we pray, amen. Let me ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering.